This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Future of Cybercrime podcast sponsored by Kella. Today, we have Scott Small joining us for a conversation on cyber threats and cybercrime. Welcome, Scott. I appreciate you being here. Hey, Zara. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to chat this afternoon. Absolutely. So, Scott, just to tell the folks here about you, you're a well-versed security and intelligence practitioner, but I don't think I can include your background in one breath uh, over here. It's quite impressive. So can you tell us more about yourself? What is it that you professionally do? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Happy to give the overview and happy to dig deeper into anything uh, specific. But as you mentioned, I usually kind of describe myself as a security and intelligence practitioner, meaning most of my roles have had intelligence research and analysis components, but All of them have had a really heavy focus on what's the outcome of this intelligence? How specifically can I use a given intelligence product to strengthen security at the organization that I was working for supporting? And ideally, that process should be baked into intelligence products or roles. But in my experience, it really hasn't always been the case, unfortunately. So I just hit my 10-year mark in my professional career. And one thing that I think is fairly unique is that I've spent my entire career doing intelligence analysis in the private sector. I think that's definitely becoming more common. But at the time I started working, most people with formal intelligence analyst titles typically had spent at least some time with the government or the military. And my main areas of expertise are in open source intelligence and cyber threat intelligence specifically around tracking threat actor tactics, techniques, and procedures, or TTPs. And uh, in both of those areas, I managed to kind of carve out a small niche of being able to process and visualize large security data sets to make them more digestible for folks in the community. And that's actually led to a couple of side projects and websites that I've had the chance to release independently for use within the community. Like I said, that is impressive. So you, you've had a significant amount of time in the security and risk intelligence world, and you also give back to the community from the research that you've already conducted, your GitHub repositories, all the way down to presentations at various conferences like B-Sides or DEF CON. So fantastic stuff out there, Scott. With all of your experience in security and intelligence, You also must have some experience around the dark web threat intelligence realm as well, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I definitely wouldn't say it's my core expertise, but I do feel like uh, to truly be kind of a a well-rounded cyber threat intelligence professional or or within your program, you absolutely can't skip out on uh, touching on dark web intelligence specifically. And, And that's definitely been the case for myself. So kind of my first exposure to seeing dark web intelligence was working for a managed security service provider. 
where, you know, I wasn't going out and actually directly accessing some of these forums. We had specialists who were really well versed in, you know, just getting onto dark web forums and onion sites, things along those lines, but uh, responsible for actually reviewing some things that were being discussed on the dark web. So that was kind of my first exposure and then transitioning a couple of roles later to working for kind of a pure intelligence company where a huge component of what we did was exactly what I just described, but at even a larger scale. So performing that really broad-based collection on both just kind of general dark web sites, which I would, you know, relate like Onion sites and Tor sites to, as well as those really kind of specific and difficult to access dark web forums where sometimes you need to have, again, someone like vetting for you to be able to get access to those. So again, we had specialists who would get us onto those locations on the dark web, but then our products would kind of help practitioners analyze and maybe even do things like alert on references within those places of dark web forums. All right. Well, still wonderful in that you would be able to see the outcome of all of that exploration and research in the dark web. Given that, how would you summarize the state of the dark web threat intelligence world today? In fact, from your first exposure to an understanding of it to today? Obviously, the dark web has the notoriety of always being kind of this murky, unknown place. And along with that, I think there's always a lot of fear about what's happening on the dark web. But quite honestly, you know, there's always going to be a lot more work to be done for sure. And there are some trends that really do concern me. But at the end of the day, I can absolutely say that I've seen quite a few success stories come out of dark web intelligence. Just a couple of specific generalities, things like a security team being alerted to uh, threat actors selling something like initial access into their organization's network is one relatively common win or success story that I've seen. And then some other really common ones are organizations at times being able to scoop up like a batch of leaked user or employee credentials before they get picked up by more malicious actors, which are routinely used in later attacks. So there definitely is a, a lot of success, despite a lot of definitely lingering concerns about what's happening on the dark web. Let's dig into those lingering concerns a bit. I am just as concerned about financial documentation, including even just customer databases being posted on the dark web. And not only that of private organizations, but also most prominently of many governments. So is that one of the more concerning things you're seeing? Do you have something else that is also concerning you? I mean, there are a host of things that could be concerning. I would say that for sure, what you mentioned is just kind of data leakage in general. I think that's obviously always going to be a concern and that's most often going to be playing out on the dark web, whether it's uh, in a location that, you know, we as security professionals can access or if it's happening even further, quote unquote, underground where even the security community can't get visibility into it. So that's definitely a concern for sure. I would say I have two additional probably top trends that definitely concern me. So I think the first one in general, it kind of speaks to truly what's happening just in the adversary or threat actor space generally. And that's adversaries truly are kind of mirroring or probably in some cases even surpassing what the security community is trying to do, specifically around like automation at the end of the day. A, a huge focus of security programs these days is uh, speeding up or making the program more efficient. 
And I can tell you for sure that the threat actors are doing the exact same thing, obviously, just from the reverse side of things. So how that kind of plays out specifically, I know there's certainly other areas as well, things like just botnets uh, being increasingly automated. But the biggest specific concern that I've seen recently are these information stealer and especially uh, user credential stealer marketplaces, which quite honestly work in an extremely automated fashion. So certainly a lot of potentially manual work being done to get the actual stealer malware on victim machines. But once those malware are successfully getting a foothold and starting to extract the user's credentials, a whole chain of automation events occurs from there to actually get them back to the control of the threat actor and then basically literally post it up on one of these websites or marketplaces. And they they honestly kind of look like, you know, something like a traditional e-commerce site that we would use as well. And it just greatly increases the scale and the speed with which actors can kind of monetize those credentials. And that's why we see like literally millions of these getting out there uh, during any given month. So that's definitely the top trend. And we can dig more into that uh, if you'd like. And I'd say the second top trend is just kind of in a similar vein, but these threat actors or sometimes groups or clusters of threat actors who are specifically motivated and kind of organized around getting this initial access into victim organization and then turning around and most oftentimes just selling that access to some other actor. So the follow-on actor may be financially motivated or maybe in some cases motivated by something like espionage or destruction. So these are, they're called like initial access brokers. They even go by the acronym IABs. And that's kind of the second trend. There's certainly a lot of overlap between those two things for sure as well. So identity and data sales, that absolutely is concerning. And you're bringing awareness and attention to it, actually, in our conversation makes me think of something else. Clearly, these underground identities, these people are talking shop as well. Because so in the midst of data sales, there are also service offerings. So cybercrime is is slowly moving, as I understand it, to a service-based economy where these cyber criminals are actually offering tools, malware, even bespoke attacks for sale. So it's not just that data and those identities, but also ways to actually enhance the threat landscape. So that's pretty nuts. Have you been familiar at all with any shop talk that these cyber criminals would have about those things and their commonly discussed TTPs on the dark web as well? Yeah, absolutely. 1000%. And that probably maybe makes up some of the majority of the discussions. You know, I think traditionally, most often, just purely based on the places that I've worked, most often what I've seen are, you know, references to victim organizations, or maybe their industries generally, because those are quite literally keywords that you could, you know, search against some data that you've aggregated around the dark web. But absolutely, to your point, uh, discussions around TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures, and just ways of getting into victim organizations, that's making up certainly a huge portion of the overall dark web conversation, for sure. So what I can summarize some of the trends there is that's happening at all ranges of scale as well. And you already kind of touched on it. So maybe on like the lower end or like the individual end, you quite literally have individual actors discussing some new specific technique implementation Quite honestly, the biggest thing that I've I've seen around this is uh, bypassing defenses. So Windows Defender, you know, truly a, a quite strong security solution. And because of that, 
actors consistently talking about, you know, what's the next new way of evading a detection or an alert by one of these uh, security tools, antivirus, EDR, endpoint detection and response tools that are increasingly being put on machines as security controls, ways to get around those, basically. But my point is, uh, some of that is happening at a relatively small scale. And, you know, these individual techniques for getting around that on the other end of the spectrum, which you've already touched on, is basically underground or threat actor activity as a service. I recently saw, I can't remember the exact name of the platform, but there was basically this new tool. It's probably the most advanced and extreme end of this trend that I've seen so far, but it was basically known as, I think, like C2 as a service, which C2 or CNC stands for Command and Control Server. At a high level, these are basically the machines or the servers that threat actors use to kind of run their operations. And what this looks like is not just handing over like a a C2 capability to another actor, but actually managing it for other threat actors. So making it that much easier to use if the end user threat actor is maybe not extremely technically proficient and doesn't know how to stand up or configure one of these C2 servers on their own, they can simply pay their way to the C2 service provider and it's got, you know, a nice fancy dashboard. It's going to look like some sort of, you know, dashboard or, or platform or tool that we use every single day. And you can just click a few buttons and maybe toggle some things to choose what settings you want. But it's just lowering that barrier of entry to performing malicious activity. And this is an example of a trend that is a little bit kind of terrifying and something that we need to keep a really close eye on. We need to see what indicators are associated with these tools and then what follow-on TTPs are used once you've landed on a network to kind of get around and, and do bad stuff, basically. Also, when threat actors collaborate, when they actually show a united front and pretty advanced processes, that's when everyone should really be on high alert. I, that's what I'm hearing. I think that's definitely true, for sure. One thing that I guess we can be a a little bit happy about is there's definitely a lot of egos at play in the underground, just like there is on the surface level as well. And so certainly there are cases where we've seen like infighting and and a lot of turning your back on your fellow thieves in some cases. And we saw that play out with like the Conti leaks, um, just, you know, some amazing visibility that we got to see into you know, threat actor chat forms and how those play out. But at the end of the day, I think my probably assumption or best guess is that in general, we're seeing whether they think about it in these terms or not, we're definitely seeing uh, more kind of collaboration and sharing almost of these TTPs. And that's definitely, yeah, certainly something that concerns me for sure, something we need to keep a close eye on. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so humans will always be humans. So. Hey, that's true. Yep, yeah. and that, that exists. That plays out on the dark web for sure. And the prisoner's dilemma escapes in nobody. So what are security practitioners doing about all of this? You have this knowledge, and clearly others defending their organizations should have this knowledge. I'm crossing my fingers on that. So tell me, how often do they have this knowledge? But what are people doing about it? What should they do about it? I think the biggest thing is that you really do have to take this space of the intelligence problem seriously. Like you really do it as almost essential. I truly believe this, obviously a little bit biased coming from an Intel background, but you really do need to take dark web Intel seriously and have at least some capability in place to kind of perform some of this monitoring. And you know, it oftentimes is best or at least most efficient to potentially outsource some of that because of how challenging and truly how risky it can be to 
get access to and maintain access to some of these sites. I think it is kind of a, a natural progression that some of that is outsourced to specialists and, you know, relying on some of the vendors to help you get that access. But what I've most often seen is just performing some what I think is uh, okay to call kind of basic like alerting or monitoring on dark web discussions is really kind of a, a quick and easy way of starting to get some relevant and useful intelligence around what's happening on the dark web. And what that looks like, it truly is not an exaggeration to say that it is relatively easy and unfortunately relatively common to see references to specific, you know, brand names, or certainly if you look at some of the credentials that are being, you know, shared or leaked, or in some cases sold on some of these marketplaces, oftentimes, you know, they'll be referencing your big box brand names, organizations. And that is something that, you know, if you have a capability to have visibility into what's being shared on the dark web, you can, you know, set up some of this alerting and monitoring on. And yeah, it's not, you know, going to solve all those problems. I definitely see a lot of things, as I think I mentioned before, being pushed a little bit further underground, but there's definitely a lot happening still at the level that the security community has visibility into where you can perform some of this monitoring for sure. There's always going to be a need for threat actors to kind of publicize, if they, especially if they're trying to make money off of credentials that they've stolen or access that they have into an organization, they're going to want to promote that and, and get the highest price for what they have. And so I certainly believe that there's always going to be an element of promotion and therefore visibility for us to be able to see, even if it's on something that's quote unquote underground or, or the dark web. So a good amount of that branding, that marketing, that promotion, those sales are are pushing these threat actors out of the dark web into the public. You just reminded me, even in phrasing it back, that it's actually even going a step further. And what I've actually started to see, and some of this might just be me not knowing it, but I, I do feel like there's at least a small trend here, not even like underground sites that are a little bit hard to get to, but truly like surface web level websites. And even in a couple of cases, Twitter accounts operated by almost certainly the threat actor groups where they're promoting some of the things that they've done. And I think where I've seen this most recently are ransomware groups, as well as what are, I guess, commonly known as data extortion groups, where maybe they're not using ransomware malware specifically, but they're just simply using other techniques to seize data of a victim organization and then try to extort that victim further for a financial payout. We're seeing cases where they're standing up just clear net surface websites to kind of promote what they've done and just to further pressure or scare the victim into paying up, basically. That's when the real deal happens. And then we, in the more strategic world, start to see negotiations at the executive level about cyber insurance once someone's privy to that attack and unfortunately victim to it. So we can see the picture playing out all the yep. way from yeah the, the security of the dark web, sure, but also the need to expose oneself as a threat actor in order to gain that notoriety. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's almost kind of amazing. And I don't actually know where it's going to end, but just truly how brazen some of these attacks have become. I do actually almost think there is an element of doing some of this for, quote unquote, the clout. 
to get that notoriety. And it, it just kind of blows my mind because we just recently saw, I mean, uh, it was one of the teenagers associated with the Lapsus group, which is one of these data extortion groups, not using necessarily ransomware specifically, but trying to extort some extremely major organizations. We did see one of the individuals arrested and they had actually been detained previously and then they were released temporarily. And during that release time, you know, if this is all true, this is all the allegations so far, but they've carried out some additional attacks and they did not hold back, um, extremely publicizing what they were up to. And, you know, they got caught. So <laughs> I don't understand the point of that. But yeah, definitely just trying to kind of show off what they've done. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, that seems to be a trend just in humanity. <laughs> I guess so. Self-promotion, yeah. self-promotion, not helping so much sometimes. All right. So there's a wealth of knowledge. We're even talking through some of it. I know that there are various intelligence sources for security analysts, and the dark web is only one element of that. Now, about that one element, the dark web threat intelligence world, what are security practitioners getting wrong? So there's a ton to get right, but what are they getting wrong? That's a really good question. So a couple things, I think, and falling back probably on one of my earlier points, but I definitely think it's extremely important. I don't think people are completely getting this wrong, but they're at least underestimating just how easy it is to get this initial foothold into an organization. And then, you know, a lot of times it's relatively easy to maintain that access as well. And so, you know, where this is playing out is some of these initial access brokers, whether they're doing it through like an automated marketplace or they're just doing individual one-on-one -on -one negotiations to sell this access. There are obviously just so many different ways if you want to try hard enough to get an initial foothold, you exploit vulnerabilities. Uh, you get in through a RDP, remote access server, where you just, you know, social engineer, fish your way into organization. If you want to try hard enough, it really is not too difficult to get that access. So, and again, going back to the automation piece, just with uh, the underestimation of how this can all play out, I do think folks tend to underestimate just how many, again, like leak credentials are out there, how much is being turned over. And anyone is available, as long as they can access the marketplace, they can go on there. Uh, it most often costs $10 to purchase one of these packages of credentials. It's not even a, a single email address and a password. These days with some of the sites like uh, Genesis and Russian Market and Too Easy Shop, you purchase a complete identity associated with a real person, a real victim. Uh, and this includes usually multiple credentials, multiple passwords, as well as even like browser cookies. So you can kind of completely assume their identity. So that's one big thing, just the ease of use here. I do think that one of the other things that at least some folks and organizations do get wrong is in some ways, uh, like how forthcoming threat actors are or are not on the dark web. So one of the things that I have literally heard from multiple places before is concerns that threat actors are, you know, openly discussing attacks against their organization on these sites. I truly have never seen at least a credible threat actor explicitly saying that they were going to go carry out a specific point in time attack. I had a concern from one organization one time that they were going to advertise, you know, a physical attack on the underground or on the dark web. And, you know, truly just for OPSEC reasons alone, that's typically not something that's going to happen. From an alerting perspective, you would want to obviously 
have some visibility into that, but it's just not something that typically happens. But I do think there's a misconception that those types of discussions happen like all the time on the dark web. And it, it really is exceptionally rare to get to that level of specificity and detail. Mm. So folks think that people are just obviously talking about what they're going to do, but in fact, they're just making a market out of you. So yeah. Just selling parts of you, intelligence, (laughs) until they really get access to ways to manipulate your persona. Yeah, I think that's definitely accurate. And, you know, one thing is is the forecasting. There's a lot less of threat actors forecasting what they're going to do. There's definitely some pretty explicit discussions of, you know, what they have done, again, for the notoriety or, or just to get some sales. I think one other big thing, too, when we talk about the initial access brokers, what I most commonly see here is the threat actors will advertise that they have initial access into a victim organization, and they still have that access. They're trying to sell it onward. But what they do, again, for operational security reasons is they typically at that point won't specifically say what organization they've compromised because they know in a lot of cases the security community is on here and you know monitoring some of these forums. So what they'll often do is talk uh, generalities around the organization that they've compromised. So they'll oftentimes mention what industry they're in. They'll go to the level of saying what you know annual revenue does the organization have, how many employees do they have, and what locations. And those are all things that would probably try to increase the sale price for the access that they have. But it, again, they do it so that we can't as easily, you know, alert on a keyword like a brand name, for example. So there is some certainly obscurity that they try to include into that process. Understood. So what people are usually getting wrong is that they're assuming too much about the quality of the information that's there, not realizing that it's a little bit more than that. It's not that people are talking about what exploits they will undertake openly, but rather shopping personas, shopping information, and people underestimate just how much that's worth. So what you're really promoting as security practitioners stay up with your hygiene and use this as an opportunity to learn about what is outside of your line of sight, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is huge value in some of this trend analysis, to your point, around what is happening on the dark web, because that's where you truly can help cut through the noise in terms of the consumers of intelligence and understanding what's going on without needing to set up all these alerts that may not actually either uh, pay off and trigger ever or would be really noisy. Obviously, I said pretty clearly before that I think most organizations should have a dark web intelligence capability, but I will be the first to admit that if you haven't, you know, set up or tuned some of these alerts correctly, it can actually be very noisy because of those points that we just talked about. There's not a lot of oftentimes extremely explicit references or discussions back to specific victims. And so it can actually sometimes kind of consume teams if they're trying to track everything. So especially the more kind of trend analysis, I think there's a ton of value to be had there and helps not needing to look at every single dark web forum post that's taking place. Because quite honestly, a lot of times some of this is pretty benign as well. Um, you know, not every single uh, forum discussion on the dark web is necessarily going to be something that's really interesting from an intelligence perspective. Uh, you know, there's a lot of just uh, generic chatter that's happening as well, for sure. Mm-hmm. Completely uncontrolled chatter. I mean, security professionals are are not new to noise. 
there's a lot of noise, a lot of false positives in this technology world. Yep. And that also a lot of false information in this world generally. So using that same mentality of being just very critical, also just observing and thinking through intelligence is necessary. That requires a good deal of patience for a security professional, it seems. So I admire that. Now, you know, we spoke a little bit about trends. I want to know five years from now, it's a long time. I understand in the security world, it's it's too long. It's really the future because everything moves so fast. But five years from now, what do you think cybercrime threat intelligence will look like? I think one trend that I've already started to see play out a little bit, and I think will continue, is that unfortunately, some of these dark web discussions are going to continue to be driven further underground. And I think some of that comes with this awareness that uh, security and intelligence practitioners do oftentimes have some of this visibility to perform this monitoring. So I think some of these discussions are just going to keep getting further driven underground, even to places where it may be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for, you know, a researcher to be able to have that visibility. So, you know, some of these two-way, three-way, or, or just much more kind of closed off forums or, you know, chat rooms, things like that. And that's going to make it really difficult to observe some of these discussions, which, you know, if an actor is going to that level from an operational security perspective, they're probably discussing something pretty notable and concerning. So that is something that I think will be a huge challenge. Maybe there's not a perfect solution to it. So we got to fall back on other security countermeasures, you know, defensive depth, uh, do what we can to kind of strengthen the organization ahead of time, do some threat hunting for indicators, TTPs, if we just truly can't get ahead of things. But at the same time, one thing that does relieve me kind of counteracting that trend is what we just discussed a moment ago, which is there's always going to be this push and pull of actors in many cases needing to advertise and promote themselves. And so I don't think it's the case that all threat actor activity and discussions are always going to be driven further underground. They, they have to maintain some presence. And from a security perspective and intel perspective, that is a good thing because it gives us an opportunity to at least keep a finger on the pulse at least a little bit into what's happening in the adversary space. So the cat and mouse game continues, basically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> from our current viewpoint, from today's viewpoint, at least, it's scary to look at the world in the future, given that a lot looks a little bleak. So that's the more pessimistic outlook on everything. However, in the cyber and threat intelligence world, a lot of the vendors are coming up with really cool stuff. Also, using what attackers have against them, intelligence to counterintelligence, attack to counterattack. So on the more optimistic side, the fight continues. And that's probably what will happen in the future. And we'll, we'll wait and see. Hopefully we will see. So then let's go to that same future five years from now. What role are you going to play in this future? Well, hopefully uh, keep contributing and, and moving things forward. What I've been doing most recently uh, in the intelligence space is focusing in on those adversary tactics, techniques, and procedures, or TTPs. And one of the things that I really like about this space is, I think, as I mentioned, it's oftentimes a really good kind of fallback or, again, this layered uh, defense, defense in depth approach. So because of all of these concerns and issues that we've been chatting about, you know, oftentimes I think it's realistic to look at security with the perspective of what's known as assumed breach. 
And that's basically saying, look, realistically, we are going to get compromised at some point in time. Let's do everything else that we can to be able to detect if an actor has landed within our network and be able to, you know, recognize that activity and stop it before something really, really bad occurs, like, you know, ransomware encryption or actually exfiltrating sensitive data. And so focusing in on these TTPs, what that kind of looks like is in the grand scheme of things, there is a relatively small or at least smaller subset of behaviors or activities that threat actors can use on a machine, on a server within a network to carry out malicious activity. And so doing things like trying to define those behaviors using things like the minor attack framework our knowledge base and trying to kind of categorize those. It's just basically a way of making it a little bit easier to make sense of this vast space of cyber threat activity. And so what I'm doing specifically is focusing in on intelligence for what's known as purple teaming. And the reason for that name is it's kind of blending the red and the blue side of security, offensive and defensive, and is trying to actually simulate or emulate threat actor activity within your own environment before an actual bad actor would come in and and perform that activity. So you have some simulation of what threats actually would look like, and you can proactively or more proactively put in place some of these relevant defenses before an actual malicious actor would arrive there. And so what I'm specifically trying to do is improve and make more efficient intelligence collection around adversary TTPs and kind of how that informs into purple teaming. All right. Well, Scott, you know what that sounds like? What immediately goes off in my head is that this sounds like you're progressing towards building a kind of breach and attack simulation plus threat intel tool, perhaps. All right. And maybe some EASM, this external attack surface management tool as well. Something along the lines of those three things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm seeing so much more awareness. I'm really excited about it. You know, there is truly no silver bullet in security, but at least one really, really strong solution is kind of advancing to this point where we are consistently and very accurately recreating or emulating what the adversaries are up to. And when we see the introduction of more of these security technologies, things like breach and attack simulation, more automation around that, I think it's a very, very welcome step. Not all organizations are going to be able to jump immediately into that due to finances or just resources available. But the barrier to entry to performing purple teaming and breach and attack simulation is getting much, much lower. And there's even ways I'm a huge proponent of just advancing this thought process around Again, call it purple teaming and simulating actor behaviors. So things like the Red Canary uh, Atomic Red Team project, even if you're doing a single adversary technique, carrying out one explicit behavior, running a commander process known to be associated with threat actors, thinking through what that looks like, how you can run that, and then importantly, how you can detect it. That is huge and immensely powerful for security and intelligence practitioners to, to kind of put yourself in that mindset. I'm seeing so much more of that happening and it's really exciting for sure. Awesome. And you know, what's even more exciting is that you're offering this pretty much up to anybody, right? Control validation compass is that GitHub that you have for that one specific project, right? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thanks for bringing that up. Definitely been a, a passion project of mine. So what this is, is a freely and openly available, publicly accessible kind of project that I'm hosting. There's like a web app for it, uh, as well as all of the underlying data is available to anyone who wants to access it as well. The website or web app uh, is controlcompass.github.io. And what this looks like is basically aggregating all of these security resources, and these include both the defensive resources, so things like detection rules. These are logics that you can put in place in security technologies to be able to detect and recognize adversary behavior, as well as uh, I mentioned Atomic Red Team. There are many other solutions out there that exist and are publicly available that allow you to simulate these threat actor behaviors or TTPs. So there's lots of resources on that side of the equation as well. Basically kind of compiling and making it really easy to find all of those resources in one centralized hub. And the way that this all works, none of this would be possible and I can't give enough credit to the MITRE ATT&CK knowledge base and, and project there. Every single resource that's included in the control validation compass maps to these specific identifiers that are published by the MITRE ATT&CK program. And so that's kind of one of the key central ways that you can look up all these resources is you plug in that identifier, just search for a technique by its name, and the output will be you know, a list of potentially dozens of security controls, as well as those tests that you can run to make sure that the controls and the detections are actually working as you're uh, intending or expecting them to do. So everything pointing back to the adversary behaviors, uh, but making it way faster and more efficient to surface all of that. And then just taking that just a couple steps further as well. So you can do a lookup for a single adversary technique. Let's take that a step further and uh, surface multiple techniques that might be associated with a specific APT group, advanced persistent threat, or a cyber crime group. Uh, the tool makes it easier to look up groupings of those techniques and then uh, output all the associated detections and red team tests as well. And all of that encompassed in Control Validation Compass, that is the title of that GitHub, correct? Yeah, that's project. Correct. Yep, okay. yep. Thanks so this, much for spotlighting it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel compelled to because in the cybersecurity world, a lot of people build something and with the intent to monetize, almost immediately monetize. You are a testament to how collaboration and open communication in this world can breed innovation and sharing that intelligence as well to breed further and innovation is just a, it's a great initiative to take. Truly is a passion project. That's where the passion comes out. It's when you have zero expectation from others except for your singular goal for promoting the project and its intent. It's clear, good intent. So I respect that. <laughs> Thank you so much. No, I truly, I, I hope it helps uh, others in the way that I've benefited so much from so many of these open source projects. Like truly, it's helped me grow so much of my skill set and truly has actually led to professional opportunities as well. Some of the things that I've just learned from information online on YouTube, other GitHub projects, I uh, truly have advanced my skills as a cybersecurity and as an intelligence practitioner from a lot of these projects. Again, MITRE ATT&CK and all the trainings and learnings that have uh, come up around that project specifically, like I just feel so much more knowledgeable um, as a result of that. And uh, yeah, want to just uh, keep paying that forward for sure. I think people can take from that advice. Things are out there. Go look for them. That's that's definitely a 
overall a larger message from our chat today. What are three other pieces of actionable advice that you'd give security practitioners that are listening in today? Yeah, for sure. So maybe the first one is actually take advantage of those resources. And it is a little bit hard to even recommend exactly where to start just because there's so much out there. But if you wanted to fall back on one starting point, there are so many directions that you can go from researching the information around MITRE ATT&CK TTPs from the offensive and the defensive side. But I think it's knowing that those resources exist out there. A little bit of it is going to be, you'll need to be kind of self-motivated to, you know, dig up and, and keep digging into that information. But I think if you hope to be really successful in this field, I definitely think, and the folks who are most successful, they just have that continual learning kind of mindset. It's just going to pay off in so many dividends. So take advantage of, of the free stuff that's out there. There is so much more than any one person could ever entirely go through. So that's maybe uh, point number one. Maybe on the flip side of that, point number two would probably be Try as hard as you can. It's really difficult, but try not to overcomplicate things when thinking about security. So I am myself guilty of this. And being in the threat intelligence field, there is a never-ending stream of, you know, what's the latest threat? Who is the latest threat actor that we all should be concerned about the latest technique? There's so much chatter out there going on all the time. It's really easy to get kind of consumed and overwhelmed by it. But when we do take that step back and perform some of this trend analysis, that's a huge area where I see Intel adding value. We really can start to see that there are relatively small vulnerabilities that threat actors most often take advantage of. And I'm not trying to oversimplify things either. There, Again, there is no silver bullet. We need to look at software vulnerabilities as well as human weaknesses and social engineering. But when you can kind of cut through the noise and, and boil things down, focus in on a handful of things that you can start to take action on, that is super important. And then maybe number three, probably elaborating on a few points that I've made already so far, but really keeping an open mind is essential to a good intelligence analysis. But along with that, maybe a bit more specifically, trying to put yourself in the adversary's shoes uh, is extremely important. And maybe the most immediate way of doing that is some of these exercises or at least approaches to security where you're taking kind of a red teaming or blending uh, purple teaming approach, but trying to, you know, flip things around, put yourself in the adversary's shoes, think about how they would maybe go about performing an attack. Even if you're not extremely experienced in this field, just, you know, take a step back and, and think through it from the other side. There are so many security benefits that can come out of taking that approach. And I'm, uh, if it's not obvious, uh, a huge advocate for kind of the red and purple teaming side of the space and really excited to see it continuing to grow. This is incredible advice. What I'm hearing is curiosity, patience, and empathy. Those are three character values, human values anyone should have to live a very holistic life. So being constantly curious, being patient as well, not letting everything affect you. And then that empathy, it's an odd thing to apply to a threat actor, but they too are human with their own objectives and goals. And when you're able to realize you're coming from the same source of intelligence, then you can see the perspective a little easier. And that goes well in line with the curiosity and the patience. So thanks for that, that advice. Scott, that's what I heard. Hopefully I didn't get that wrong. No, you totally nailed it. Yep. We need uh, more of all three of those traits in the world in general. But as you mentioned, I, I think sometimes it is a little bit counterintuitive, maybe in security or intelligence specifically, but it's just that much more so uh, if you want to be you know, effective in this field. So yeah, mm -hmm. great summary. 
Okay. Well, thanks. I do want to thank you again for joining us. We are going to wrap up here. Before we do, where can people learn more about you and follow your journey? So again, thanks for the chance to have the spotlight here. Really appreciate that. Um, I can give a few links just to some of my projects and you know some writings and analysis that I've done. So my two community projects, we touched on the one, Control Validation Compass. That's controlcompass.github.io. I do have a, another separate project that looks at uh, open source intelligence resources. So kind of in a similar vein of aggregating all of these resources and making them easy to find. And that's called MetaOSINT. It's M-E-T-A-O-S-I-N-T dot github dot I-O. And then I also have uh, quite a few just like tools and, and other smaller projects on my personal GitHub page, which is TroShow. It's T-R-O-P-C-H-A-U-D. That's the my GitHub username. Internet points if, if folks can figure out uh, why I chose that for sure. And then finally, I'm on uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I actually do publish uh, quite a bit of just articles on there, mostly around Intel adversary TTPs. And my uh, Twitter account, super original. It's at Intel Scotts with two T's. So a few different places to track me down. Probably all those things eventually point back to one another. So hopefully, uh, catch you around out there on the internet. Thanks, Scott. Well, there you have it, folks. You can get a hold of Scott in many different ways. <laughs> and, and we are just, just so appreciative of you tuning in today. And we'll look forward to you tuning in on the next episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast, sponsored by Kella. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.